Hello, Erica. Hello, Dwayne. Hello, Austin. Hello, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about occupational licensing? Yes, we are. We're excited. Couldn't be more ready. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is occupational licensing and was recorded on December 16, 2019. Here are the folks pitching in to help us better understand this priority initiative. I'm Austin Bannon, Senior Policy Analyst of Employment Policy at AFP. My name is Erica Jedinak. And I'm the Director of Employment Initiatives for Stand Together. What I'm curious about now, Erica, and, and both of you, when, when you get a chance, tell me your stories. Tell me how you got to where you're at today talking and dealing with occupational licensing. Yes. Yeah, so I have been working on this issue for almost five years. I was initially introduced via Lee McGrath, who's a legislative counsel at the Institute for Justice and uh from working for state lawmakers in New Jersey, heard from a lot of constituents who had licensing issues. So personally worked with the departments and agencies in the state of New Jersey to help them through the process. Are there a lot of requirements in New Jersey? Seems like a very free state. (laughs) There are a lot of archaic burdensome laws, as well as regulations. And going back, oh, probably eight or so years, Most of the licenses were still paper form and nothing online. And so we were in the process of moving things online and uh, moving through my career have worked on licensing in different aspects, but probably the most rewarding thing has been working with activists at Americans for Prosperity, where people are empowered to uh, actually take on take on issues that really matter to them and their lives, worked with hair braiders, uh, the hair braiding community in New Jersey to pass reform. Uh, So and a lot of those women were fighting for much, much longer, almost 20 years before I I got into the picture. Wow. They they were fighting for 20 years before they even, even met you or anything you were working on. Yes. So the hair braiding community in New Jersey, and just a little bit of background, New Jersey required a full cosmetology license, costs as much as $20,000, 1,200 hours of requirements, did not even teach ethnic hair braiding. Hmm. And so these women were being fined tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, They brought to me all kind of letters from past governors that they had sent pleas to lawmakers. Uh, and so Americans for Prosperity, really just grateful through the you know platform and infrastructure in the state, was able to connect with all these activists. How about you, Austin? Sure. Well, I've been in the network a number of years uh, and, and covered a lot of labor issues. But uh, something I worked on at Charles Koch Institute was generally uh, trying to assess the many barriers to opportunity. And this is one where a lot of times we've worked on corporate welfare uh, some other issues that have, have kind of shown an anti-competitive side of our economy. And as a network, we started to look at occupational licensing and realize that this was sort of an underlayer uh, in, in terms of all the different issues we work on. And yet there's obviously every single person in society is affected as a consumer, uh, but but about one in five uh, workers themselves are, are directly affected 
uh, requiring government occupational licenses. And we just really took interest as this being a major opportunity to, to remove a barrier that uh, directly impacts people. So let me, let me start at the most basic level and ask you, what is occupational licensing and what is the network or the community's position on it? Yes. So an occupational license is essentially a government approval to be able to work in your chosen profession. So it can look like a uh, realtor's license, a cosmetology license. It can look like an interior design license. Essentially, you have to apply to a local, state, or federal government entity to be able to work in the profession you want to. Some of them have educational requirements. Some of them don't and are just a uh, fee, essentially, and that creates a financial barrier. So at the Stand Together community, we are looking to totally reform licensing so that government licenses are just for the areas that have intersection with public safety. There has to be a necessity uh, necessitate, necessitated public harm for there to be a license. Sure. And, uh, and just to kind of note, I mean, I think our, our stance I uh, want to make clear to, to everyone listening is that, you know, we're not against credentials and training. There's a lot of necessity for that. Many occupations have a high degree of, of technical skill required, a lot of work. Um, but the problem is where government intervenes in that process. And it's increasingly a case, as, as Erica noted, there's a lot of mandatory training and fees that fit one pattern that the government wants individuals to fit. Uh, and it takes away the ability for the actual industries to innovate. Uh, along the way, there's new technologies, there's new procedures. Uh, there might be very specific requests that somebody wants training for. Uh, there's different re- you know, requests that consumers may want out of, uh, out of different practitioners, and it, and it gets limited. Uh, once it becomes sort of a one-size-fits-all approach from government. Uh, so that's, that's you know, ultimately something where uh, there, there are elements within the licensing space that uh, aren't problematic to us if, if the markets were allowed to sort of dictate what's happening. Um, and then just to note, uh, sometimes we, we discuss what the burden is from government, but we can't forget that, you know, if we say there's a, a, a degree of fees you pay the government, oh, it's several hundred dollars. Well, you're also subjected to thousands or potentially tens of thousands of dollars and the private training that you have to do through the government mandate. So it's it's really, and not only that, but there's continuing education. So you're, you've never, you never really have the license. Uh, you continue to get permission along the way. There was a Facebook meme that I saw, and I base most of my political philosophy on Facebook memes. Uh, so it, it fluctuates depending on, uh, on what's, uh, what's going on and what I'm reading. But the Facebook meme said that licensing is nothing more than the government taking your rights from you and then selling them back to you. And when I read it, I thought, well, they're not really selling them because if they sold them, you'd own them. They're more like renting them back to you. And I was curious uh, if, you know, how that aligned with what our positions are. Yes. So I think that's that's pretty in line with some humor. And I did see that meme on Twitter, actually, shared for, uh, by some of the movement. So that was fun. Uh, but I guess the not so fun aspect of that, right, is that people... Uh, who want to have their own business, right? A lot of people already have skills. So take that example of the hair braiding community that I worked with. The women had already learned from the time that they were little girls how to braid hair. It's really an amazing art and it's an aspect of their culture, right? 
So who is, uh, you know, a cosmetology board or the government to say, well, this is prescriptive. We want you to learn A, B, and C. And by the way, it wasn't even in the curriculum. People already have skills. Why not let them use those skills to provide for their families? I think that's what we're really talking about. Right, Austin? Yeah. And, and you know, another interesting aspect that I found out over time is there's a certain inflection point where an occupation isn't licensed and is. And who are those people initially that were licensed? Well, most of them didn't meet the requirements that are all of a sudden being established by the government to meet. And yet people have grandfathered themselves in and created an anti-competitive situation where, um, you say it may be absurd for, for hair braiders to have to go through uh, a degree of, of training that doesn't even relate to what they're doing. But by and large, that there's a there's a certain point where the majority of people, perhaps, in, in many professions, didn't go through the type of training that they're now expecting others to have anyhow. So why why are they? I, I mean, who's calling for these licenses and, and why are they calling for them? Where, I, I think it was Milton Friedman. I remember watching a video with him where he was talking about the the argument for these licenses is always public safety. And if that were the fact, then you would expect to see the citizenry that's at the state capitals calling for these licenses. But it never is the citizenry. It's always someone from where? So very astute, Dwayne. It's often special interests or uh, certain protected industries. And as Austin was alluding to, it's specific people who maybe they didn't actually meet those requirements. They have the license, they're grandfathered now. Um, I wanted to give you an example. Sure. So lactation consultants. I'm sorry. (laughs) Lactation consultants. Okay. So lactation consultants help women... uh, learn how to breastfeed and latch after they give birth. Uh, Sometimes nurses perform this service after women give birth, but there is actually a trade association for lactation consultants. And in about eight or so states, there are bills that are floating to license lactation consultants. So when this was floated in my home state, went to the committee and asked them and asked the industry who was there, the association that wanted to essentially not allow all the nurses who had studied this, who provided this service you know, to women in hospitals, to La Leche League. They wanted to kick all those people out of the profession. I asked, if this law gets enacted, how many lactation consultants will there be in the state of 9 million people? The answer was 300. 300 for a state of 9 million people, that's a that's lack of access to health care. All the volunteers of La Leche, all the nurses who had studied to be nurses, right, and spent years of providing services to women after birth would no longer be allowed to practice. And that is because of a new special interest coming in Essentially, they're trying to clear the path as, you know, hiring lobbyists going into state houses. Sure. And it, uh, you know, not surprisingly, uh, occupational licensing did take off um, even more so around medical professions. Uh, But it's interesting there was a a Dent versus West Virginia uh, Supreme Court case in the late 1800s, which is often referred to as sort of a, a key point in which government started to kind of you know, kind of grant this um, privilege to, to certain groups and sort of defer to, to regulatory agencies and others to um, 
to oversee these occupations. Um, and there was a health and safety argument made, but what there was is there was actually a lot of competition concerns. A, a large degree of medical schools were shut down um, at, the, at this point because they didn't meet the certain standard of the American Medical Association, other groups that were pushing for licensing. Um, and a lot of community provided healthcare, other um, access points that were undercutting in, in the mind of, of the, the higher income industry and, and health, they were undercutting their business by providing services. These were the targets for a lot of this. So even in, in very technical professions, there was an early interest in, in sort of anti-competitive measures, but crafted as such to, to make a public health and safety argument um, that, that courts and lawmakers would buy. I'm <clears throat> I'm struggling here for a second, if you can stick with me, because we, we've said most often it is a public safety concern that these licenses are, are put out there for a public safety concern. What were the public safety concerns requiring lactation consultants? What what was the fear there that these these rogue lactation consultants would be a danger to society? What was the, I mean, I, I think this is important because if we're going to be dealing with people out there who say we need licenses for this, we really need to understand where they're coming from and what arguments we can expect. And I'm, I'm struggling to know what the dangers are with a rogue lactation consultant. How creative were they with these dangers? The number one complaint that was brought to the hearing that day is that babies are going to starve. That women do not know how to breastfeed on their own and that their babies will not latch and that they will starve and particularly in um our urban centers of new jersey and so, so the <laughs> not just the danger here is that the mother would say okay my child won't latch i guess it's gonna die yes they think that we are too stupid to be free you will literally find in many state houses across America, Dwayne, that these special interests come in and say someone is going to die. I'll give you another example for all the listeners. Interior designers are going around the country saying that people are going to die if they're not licensed. If interior designers is... Yes. Why? Because they are claiming that only they can advise on fabrics for commercial buildings that are not flammable. And if not, people could die a very tragic death in a fire. Now, this is not a, a joke, Dwayne. We want to prevent, right, those aspects of, um, you know, danger, right, for the public. But there are already fire codes in place, right? As Austin was mentioning you know, the movement for occupational licensing reform to reduce barriers to work and, and burdensome regulations, it's not about taking away training or regulation. This is about putting into place laws that make sense, right? There's already fire codes. Uh, as far as it, you know, goes with lactation consultants, since I, you know, can, can sense that you're surprised there, and I'm sure some of your listeners are, Besides the fact that there are already nurses in place, right, to to consult with women after birth, um, it's it's very natural, right, as part of women and mothering, and for the government to be involved, um, I would say is very unnatural, right, 
and the fact that licensing would take away options for women. So let's just let's just hypothetically say that that license went into place. It didn't. And there were only 300 lactation consultants in the state of New Jersey. Dwayne, do you think that they would go to Jersey City, to Patterson, to Trenton? Or are they going to go to the cities where they could be paid the most as markets work? Right. And and the idea that you are you are preventing children from starving by limiting the number of consultants is idiocy. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't think of it anyway. <laughs> We've got all these consultants out there, and if we don't limit the number of them, uh, then children are going to die. That doesn't make any sense. Not to mention, I mean, we say health and safety, but each and every time we do something, there's a potential health and safety issue. None of us are outside of the purview of government oversight. You know, we're, Whether there's a license or not, uh, that's that's one of the biggest issues we have is that people are still accountable for endangering the lives of others. Um, and there's often, as you say, the government license doesn't make the, the situation safer. It still has to be a person that's dedicated and competent and pays attention, you know, passing a, a, a few hurdles from the government side doesn't guarantee that you're a credible person or mm-hmm. someone who's honest. We we look at things through the lens of our of our network vision, and you know we exist to break barriers. And there are, there are four mutually reinforcing principles. So let's talk about what we're doing in this realm in this focus area here through the lens of equal rights. How would you explain to someone uh, our position through that lens of equal rights? Sure. Well, I mean, this is an, a, a situation, uh, obviously, we're, we're here to break barriers. This is a, a major barrier for individuals. Um, you know, people as consumers and providers want to be able to have freedom of association, freedom of contract to work together with this. Um, you know, essentially, when you have government licenses, it's almost like you're guilty until proven innocent. You have to meet all these thresholds from somebody who's not even a part of the transaction. Uh, and that undermines your, your personal liberties. You don't have access to, as we would say, one one thing that's considered sort of a fundamental right that we have is, is the right to our own labor. So essentially, until you start to do something um, with the world around you and start to employ your labor to make things, to build things, start having transactions, if you don't have a sort of the right to your own work, you know, what do you have as, as a fundamental beginning? So, um, you know, this is just uh, something that, we'd say is, is very basic, um, you know, that you, you can't even employ yourself without that uh, first stage of, of sort of government permission. It's sort of, uh, if we look at many, many things, there's, there's obviously concerns about many different government regulations and, and laws, but um, this one is sort of a, in a very initial barrier that prevents you from even getting started. Uh, so that's, you know, something I think we would say is, is a, a sort of an initial point of our view. One, one thing that I think about, um, there, there's there's that aspect of it, and that it keeps a person um, from from entering that workforce. It's also uh, a, a piece of leverage that established businesses can use to prevent that competition, and it it, it kind of relates to that. But it, it's it's almost the same thing from the other side of the coin. In that, often established businesses will will go out and promote these things, not. For public welfare, that that may be how they sell it, but they're actually putting things in place to limit competition to them. And uh, you know, there's one thing that comes to mind uh, in in uh, another state. I'm not going to mention which state, but they recently passed regulations regarding uh, 
uh, the home, the, the gig economy regarding renting out your, your uh, house. And in order for them to be able to do that, they have to get a license from the, the provider in that city. And there's only one person who provides those licenses in that city. And guess who was the advocate for those licenses? The person there. So now in order to, in order to be a part of this gig economy, you have to pay a thousand dollars to get a license to rent your own property in a, an agreement. And that's, that's a form of monopoly, but it also goes, you see the same thing where you have businesses that can't afford to get these licenses and they don't mind these requirements because it limits their competition. And I've said a lot there and I'd like you to, uh, to comment wherever I left some gaps. It's, you know, you touched on a really important point, Dwayne, about the boards themselves. So licensing boards around the country are typically made up of a small group of political appointees. So they're essentially insiders. Many of them have had lobbyists to get where they are today, right? Or they're appointed by a governor. And so they inherently are protecting, right, the turf, how they make money, how their friends make money. And that's been something that that has come up time and time again, right? If you're only incentivized in that way. Uh, so part of the reforms around the country are to look at more transparency for the board, make sure that there's a member of the public who's perhaps not even in that industry. Sure. Um, and, you know, I mean, something we, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll kind of talk about this um, uh, during this uh, conversation uh, further, but uh, when you're looking at this, a concern, I think there's this idea that you can have sort of a blanket policy. It's, it's easier to deal with that than um, than dealing with sort of you know other pre-existing uh, uh, ways to deal with issues. So if somebody were were renting out their home, and I know this isn't directly an occupational license, but since you brought this up, I mean, um, I mean if, if there's a limitation to how many people can be in a dwelling or certain parking restrictions, et cetera. I mean, these things can still be applied whether the, you know, this extra licensing requirement were there or not. Um, as we say, we're always subject to the government anyhow. Uh, and there's sort of this idea that um, we think this licensing board that has certain self-interested individuals uh, or maybe individuals who don't have expertise, either way, um, that, that combination, are they a better overseer of, you know, keeping, keeping people accountable than what was already sort of the, the general government process of, of holding people you know, accountable to their contracts and to other requirements. Uh, restaurants are an example where we'd say that uh, you look at something like cosmetologists or barbers. Well, if, if there's a concern that uh, one thing that gets brought up sort of uh, jokingly, but, you know, it, it is a, a, a cleanliness issue is, you know, are you using the blue fluid and you're dipping your scissors and combs in this? And, you know, how could you possibly be able to do that without a license? Like, well, you can actually have inspections like a restaurant. Cooks aren't licensed by government. Uh, in a few instances, uh, bartenders may be. That's actually one profession in the uh, within the restaurants. But generally speaking, uh, there is some health and safety concerns. You could certainly uh, be concerned about what's going on in the kitchen and and, and how uh, clean the you know sanitary the food is that's being brought out to you. And yet, we have a very successful system without government licensing. And Austin brings up a really good point that there are alternatives to occupational licensing. So that is essentially the most restrictive regulatory mechanism in the the toolbox, right, that government and lawmakers have. There's things like, first of all, the marketplace, right, Yelp. There's um, 
uh, Angie's list. You know, I think it's important for people to think about how do you look up, right? If you need a vendor, if you need a, a contractor to fix something at your house, or if you want a new hairstylist, are you going to the state agency and looking up who's licensed? Probably not. You're probably looking up on Facebook. How many stars do they have? Do they have a business page? Are they on Angie's list, right? How many people recommend them? So there's already things in in um, civil society that inform people to, to make the best decisions for themselves. And if you want to look even to perhaps more restrictive regulations, but not as restrictive as licensing, you know, you can look at how insurance providers give out insurance, right? Who has insurance? You can look up, um, you can have a, a voluntary certification in place. And Austin mentioned inspections, and there's really a whole spectrum of alternatives that lawmakers can look at. I was in Montana at uh, at, a, at an event up there, and one of the members of the uh, the audience. I was on a panel on on the uh, business and uh, the proper role of business in society. One of the gentlemen in the audience stood up, and he said he was actually for stricter government licensing on barbers. He was a barber in the state of Montana, and he was standing out there advocating for stricter government control, essentially, over, over barbers. He said that in his shop, he, uh, he had gone all over the country. He'd gone to California. He'd gone to Seattle. He'd even gone to Japan and learned all the, all the uh, requirements there in those areas for running a good, clean barbershop. And he applied those in his, in his barbershop, and he thought all the barbers in Montana ought to have to abide by the same things that he did. And he said the guy who controls the licensing keeps a dog in his shop and that violates the licensing right there. And, you know, they're not enforcing them equally. So we ought to just do everything else. And I sat there. First of all, I was stunned that someone in the profession would be advocating for greater government control over the profession. But then I simply asked two questions. One, do you recognize that you just articulated your unique selling proposition that you have a cleaner sure. shop than every other shop in the state? And second of all, what's stopping you from creating a barber association that licenses based on all those same requirements and putting that in your window saying our requirements are better than the state's. And so if you see a shop with this in the window, it's, you know, it's a top tier clean environment and he didn't have an answer. And I think that goes back to something that we deal with. At least I see it all over the country when I'm when I'm training and working with people. And it I, it was really well articulated in the book uh, "Reclaiming the American Dream." I don't know if you've all read that great book. Um, the author uh, Richard Coulson is that his last name? I think it was how, how you pronounce it. I don't remember. "Reclaiming the American Dream." But if you haven't read it, go out and read it. I've been told that it, we're actually basing the entire Stand Together community off of this book, so it's kind of important, I think. But the author in here said that there is this belief that a lack of government action is a lack of action at all. And we see the same thing. Uh, if, the government isn't do, if the government doesn't do it, it won't get done. And we see this with this licensing. We see it in there. If government doesn't put this license in place, nobody else will. And that's simply wrong. We can see the same licensing requirements or greater done by private institutions, which I think you, you spoke to briefly there. Yes, just think about car mechanics, right? So car mechanics have 
a very robust private certification. So uh, if you want to become master certified, it's not an overnight process. And it's up to you, Dwayne, as the consumer. If you want to go to your regular mechanic, you really like, say, Austin down the road, that's fine. That's up to you. And maybe you pay less, right? Or you can go to a master mechanic, or perhaps it's a master mechanic who actually runs the shop. Uh, But there's actually already professions in America that have a very robust private sector credentialing system as signals to consumers, hey, here are standards, right? And then let you, the consumer, make the best decision for you and your family. And that's yeah, that's another industry where, again, we say it's it's um, you know it's not heavily governed by um, by governments in terms of, of government licensure, but instead there are emissions standards, inspections, cars as they're manufactured. I think we all have some concern, you know, certain vehicles might be danger on the road in terms of how they're put together, and yet. You know, we don't see that as a as a concern in terms of uh, what the mechanics are doing out on the road. There's there's another point, and maybe people would have issues with with other types of regulations or requirements. But nonetheless, uh, you can find that far less burdensome than you know having that interaction point with the government for each and every individual is trying to work in the space. Yeah, and no one goes to a government website and says, uh, "My car needs work. I need suggestions," and then waits for the bureaucrats to answer those. Those requests seem to fill up my Facebook feed. <laughs> good, yeah, good luck if that if that's what's going on. So let's look at this uh, through the next uh, principle there of mutual benefit. Doesn't it benefit me as a consumer to know that the government is out there licensing these professionals? Isn't that a form of mutual benefit? Uh, it might be for for one or a few of you out there, but I think by and large, the mutual benefit comes from the fact that obviously the consumer and the provider have an opportunity to meet one another and decide that they want to engage in a transaction. Uh, when it comes to government, as we say, nobody's outside of the purview of government in terms of being accountable for, for actually you know, having some sort of health and safety concern imposed on other people. Uh, the license is sort of a detraction from that uh, by and large. So, Yeah. And I think as we were discussing earlier for consumers, right? shouldn't consumers be allowed to contract with who they want to, right? And learn from some of the market systems like Angie's List, Yelp, as we mentioned, and hire who they want. There's actually a report that was put out by the Institute for Justice on the cost of licensing because the cost to American households is quite high. It's over $1,000. Differentiates depending on your state. But it's more expensive. And uh, we've also seen just other issues where, again, when providers are kept out of the system or aspiring entrepreneurs, that's not, that's not fair to the entrepreneur and it's not fair to the consumer. And, uh, and, and we uh, brought up restaurants as a place where you know, occupational licensing hasn't sort of penetrated much, and yet there's obviously certain standards. I think that's the case with a lot of things, but you, uh, you know, you could have teeth whiteners at a mall kiosk. This is an issue actually that has existed where dentists will try to prevent uh, individuals from offering that service. And I don't know, could a dentist in the best case scenario in his or her office do a better job whitening your teeth than someone else? It It's kind of irrelevant whether they would or not, because if somebody has a preference to utilize the mall kiosk to do that, uh, it's perfectly fine. Uh, I think in restaurants, you could go to Ruth's Chris for the best steak in the market. 
but maybe you don't want that. Maybe you want a steak at Waffle House. I hope hope you don't. I hope you go for a Ruth's Crisp one. But uh, I think the <laughs> now I just want a steak in general. <laughs> but those standards, I think you know, consumers there there would be a difference in quality. That's not the exact same thing as saying there's a public health and safety issue either. And so when there's a very strict standard, the best case scenario, if government were right that they had such strict standards that everybody met it and it made the profession better, which is not a, a point I'm conceding, but if they were right, that would still drive up prices and reduce competition. And people may have a preference for different levels of service in which somebody who's pretty good at the job is perfectly fine. Just like you would go to a professional salon and maybe, you know, pay hundreds of dollars for a haircut or going to a great clips. I think there's preference that, you know, consumers get to, uh, ought to have in terms of society mutual benefit. People, people meet the, the standard they want. One of the things that is uh, that tends to get overlooked, I think, when we talk about mutual benefit is the idea of self-interest. And there is no mutual benefit without self-interest. You cannot engage in you know these things altruistically because that's not mutually beneficial. If, if I give away everything and get nothing in return, I didn't benefit. Um, and so when you look at when you look at these engagements, when we talk about mutually beneficial agreements, um, people think without licensing, uh, businesses would just take advantage of one another, or they'd they'd sell substandard things, or they'd do things that. Uh, are, are criminal or, or wrong. And I think a lot about, about this. And generally, people don't want to hurt or kill the people who give them money. I'm just I'm saying it's in their self-interest to keep that money flowing to them in order to exchange good services uh, for that cash. And so while you might have a few people out there who do some bad things, you're going to have that same exact situation with or without licensing. There is no, there is no perfect system out there. We're all flawed. We're humans, and it goes to uh, you know Thomas Sowell's idea of the constrained versus the unconstrained. Can you can you create this perfect society with just the right bureaucrats, twisting the right dials and putting the right things in place? You can have this perfect society, and and that's just it's not possible. There 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 are no solutions. Basically, there are only trade offs. And when you put these licenses in place, the trade-offs for having government control that are higher than if we controlled it ourselves through mutually beneficial agreements. And if anything, it's, I mean, sometimes you get a false reassurance that somebody has this government license so I can trust them. But there are so many services that each of us get, whether it's somebody coming out to do pest control at your house or a contractor to do some remodeling or someone to do landscaping at your house, et cetera. There's a lot of great interactions you may have, and there's some that may be substandard for you. And in many of those instances, you're talking about all licensed individuals. So sometimes the accountability is, is sort of masked by the license rather than enhanced by it. it and Austin, you, you touch on a, a good point about specifically vendors who are brought in the home. So I think sometimes there's an assumption that that piece of paper from government means that vendor's great, right? They get the, they get the gold star, they, they're approved. Uh, there was actually a study that was put out uh, quite a while ago, but uh, stands up where electricians in states that are uh, highly, highly um, licensed electricians, and there's a high bar there, more people do it yourself at home. So all kind of projects. And those states have more electrocutions, actually. And first of all, we're not saying, you know, do whatever in, in your house. I, I guess you could do whatever you want in your house. 
But I think, you know, it's important to point out that a lot of times there's actually negative effects to licensing. So it's not like, hey, we want everything deregulated, right? There are actually negative effects. Or even in places that have really burdensome standards for security guards, right? It's harder to find a security guard then. There's less of them, right? And just like electricians, in those states, it's going to cost so much more that some some folks just can't afford to hire an electrician and they're going to do it themselves. Uh, and, and I think uh, you even brought this up, Erica, with, with lactation consultants. Uh, if, if there's a limited amount of them, where are they going to go? They're going to go where, obviously, the, the highest income opportunity is. So I think, uh, you know, we, we're talking about it uh, throughout this uh, conversation, and it's going to be a continued point that uh, we do care a great deal about government occupational licensing as an employment barrier, but we all are consumers. And I think there's something that's often evident if you go into a lower income area, there's a greater degree of disrepair. There's a lot of issues that as consumers, um, these areas um, you know, suffer just as much as they do in terms of employment. And if they had access to certain services that these very strong government licensing barriers, you know, sort of create, then if they didn't have, and if they had access to these things, and rather than a sort of a dearth of these um, uh, services available, uh, th that also would help um, a lot of people rise up the economic ladder. It's it's also, as you say, we're, we're all subject to occupational licensing at minimum as consumers. I'm just sitting here thinking that only government could create a black market in lactation consulting. Nice work. I've got a license right here. This is one of two that I've held. Uh, this one's kind of old. It's it, it's worn out. It used to be much bigger than that. This is my uh, Division of Professional Registration Announcers license. When I was uh, when I was well, this is a few years ago when I was blogging, I uh, I did a lot of um, I did a lot of ring announcing for mixed martial arts fights. For a, a friend of mine had a uh, organization that was amateur fights, and so whenever they'd have a fight, I'd come in and I'd do the uh, the announcing for it. And it was a fun gig. I got a ringside seat for all the fights. Got to go up, yell into a microphone, and they paid me. It's good, good, a lot of fun. How would you know they landed a kick though, unless you were licensed? You couldn't no. describe that for someone. Well, here's the thing: as long as they were amateur fights. I didn't need a license, but then I went to my first professional fight. See, they, they, they hosted their first professional fight. And so when I showed up, I went through the regular things. I, I got the fight cards. I had to go and interview all the, uh, the fighters and get their stats, you know, their wins, their losses with their style of fighting, all that. And as I'm getting this all organized next to the ring, the promoter comes up and says, Hey, you need to go talk to the state guy about a license. And I said, that's fun. He knew me. He knew who I was. I'm like, that's really funny. I'm going to talk to a state guy. And he goes, no, seriously, you need to go talk to the state guy about a license. And I said, okay, I'll go back and talk to the state guy. And so I walked back to this table and they were shuffling a lot of paper at this table. They looked very important. And I said, I need to see somebody about a license. And he said, are you the announcer? I said, yes. He says, fill this form out. So I'm looking at this state form. And I filled the form out and I said, why do I need a license? He said, well, you need to have a license to be a ring announcer. I said, clearly, but why do I need to have a license? And he said, well, it's so we can enforce certain rules. I was like, what rules? What rules do you have for licensing? And he says, well, there was a, there was a fight uh, a while back where the, the ring announcer was a friend of one of the fighters and his friend lost, but the ring announcer still called him the winner. And so we need to be able to enforce that. And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, did the ref change his decision? Uh, did the judges around the ring suddenly said, well, the ring announcer announced it this way, so that's the way it's got to be? 
he said, just pay the fee. And I said, I'm not paying a fee. I said, the promoter could pay the fee, but 20 bucks to the state. Wow. And where's the mutual benefit there? I, I went through no training. I went through no course. I'd know no more rules other than actually call the fight the way it was called. And that's, I'm now licensed to yell into a microphone at a fight. So that's nice. The other license I got, talk about mutual benefit, was pesticides. When I was working in landscaping, I had to go to the state and take a test uh, so that I could administer pesticides correctly. Now, here's the thing. Uh, The first time I took that test, I failed it because I didn't study, because I didn't care. The next day, I went back, took the exact same test again, and I failed it. I went back the next day, took the exact same test again, and by that point, guess what? I knew the test well enough that I could pass it. So all I did was pass a test. I didn't know anything more than I did three days ago when I failed it, except the order of the questions and what they were going to ask and what the correct answers were. Reminds me of my college exams at one point where I got a wonderful score, and 30 minutes later, don't ask me yeah. <laughs> what I knew. Yeah, and we talk about mutual benefit, and we, and we think, well, they've got a license from the state, so clearly he knows how to apply those pesticides correctly. The only motivation I had in applying those pesticides correctly was that I didn't hurt anyone who wanted to give me money or I didn't hurt their property in any way. That was it. Of course, I didn't want to hurt anyone, period. But I have my own motivation not to hurt people. I don't need a state piece of paper to say, oh, well, he's not going to hurt anyone now. So the idea of mutual benefit doesn't come from state licensing. It comes from us working together as individuals. Sure. And you, I guess that's another industry, right? There, there may be a, a ban on the use of a certain chemical or, or some general legal instructions on handling those, right? And that wouldn't be relevant whether you had the license or not. That's still an expectation one way or another. We're talking about some of the, the principles about why we support occupational licensing. And what has come up quite a bit in this conversation is something that pulls apart all of this, and that's cronyism, right? Whether that's a revenue generation by the state or whoever that regulated to make make you a licensed announcer, right? Or if we're talking about lactation consultants where industry insiders are trying to kick out, you know, new competition, it's cr- cronyism that pulls that all apart. And uh, that's why we support occupational licensing reform through the vision of mutual benefit. And I think you're going to talk about a couple other things. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about openness now. If you were going to talk about the idea of, uh, of openness, this this right to openness, how would you how would you frame occupational licensing through that lens? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, clearly when uh, when a government license isn't involved, um, you know, we're very fortunate in today's society. We have a great deal of openness uh, in terms of availability of information, um, but we have an opportunity um, with each of the reforms that we're, we're trying to do here to, to kind of push this point forward, which is that people um, have a chance, uh, as we've talked about through mutual benefit, to kind of come together um, to try to engage in transactions, to provide services, to be customers with one another. Um, in a way that uh, it continues to further information and educate one another um, about um, what's available in terms of who's who's good, who you know who provides quality services, um, what do customers want, how do they innovate, 
I think the fact that the government, when it's not involved in certain areas, I mentioned something about innovation, that that happens much faster clip when there's not a, a one size fits all approach to what licensing is. So the, the openness that comes by letting the market sort of dictate what the training looks like, what the preference of consumers looks like, that also continues to sort of grow what's available in that industry and the services that people provide. There may be a certain technique that somebody's used for 30 years in some sort of antiquated license, and there's a new way to, to you know, to provide that service, uh, if only that there wasn't this strict standard, you know, sort of this kind of closed door uh, approach to what it looks like. Or there's new industries. So something that has come up fairly recent in the past 10 years, uh, at least mainstream, is eyebrow threading. I'm sorry. Eyebrow threading. So it's actually a piece of string, uh, and I guess this is mostly women, so... Uh, but Dwayne, if you want to get your eyebrows threaded, you could. I don't know why I wouldn't. They're now in mall kiosks around America. So used to be more of just a, a cultural practice with the Indian American community here. Um, but now it's pretty mainstream for women and it's in high-end salons. And uh, this is not part of most state codes and regulations. So what we see now are... Uh, sometimes cosmetology insiders or cosmetology schools are trying to scoop up eyebrow threading when really it's just something that has existed and, and been more popularized. Um, so I think those are just some new things, right, that come up. And to Austin's point about openness, right, whether it's learning from other people's cultures and diversity or just innovations in the marketplace for what customers and what consumers want you know it's um uh slightly slightly different but similar issue of home baking home baking um is allowed people can sell their home baked goods in most of america not my state <laughs> why well there's insiders protecting it but just think about like all the future you know big bakeries that could be happening right and that's the same thing for any of of these professions that are heavily licensed. Imagine the innovation that could occur if there wasn't some government program, right, holding people back. You know, I even think about my my in-laws are from Poland and they lived under communism and they often talk about how the government decided what profession you go in. The party decided what profession you go in. I think it's amazing that in America today we can – we can go and try to be anything we want, right? I don't know how grateful we are for that, but sometimes I try to think about it. That that's amazing. It is, and it's something that you spoke to. Uh, I want to. I really want to emphasize is this idea of how closing things off through this licensing really stifles innovation, and it takes it takes the imagination to think about what could be. We 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 tend to get caught up in what we see and what we know. And it goes back to this question that we ask in GLA all the time. What if government didn't do that? What, what would happen um, if we didn't have to license these things? If we didn't license this, what would happen? You know, if, if this didn't happen, would people just put up their hands and say, well, I guess I give up or well, I guess that won't happen or what? We could, you could say, again, it's unfortunate that anyone is licensed uh, or has to go through that, uh, that process, but... Um, that number sometimes in, in, in research and polling could be as high, as high as one in three people, but it's at least about one in five people. But fortunately, that means there's a lot of people who aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, none of us uh, here talking right now are licensed to do the actual thing we're doing right now. 
Uh, but I would like to think that the time I've, I've spent studying these issues gives me some ability to, uh, to help individuals understand what this government occupational licensing regime is like. So I think uh, we see a lot of innovation uh, in, in so many, the technology industry, obviously, and just in general. Um, you know, so much of that is driven by unlicensed professions. And so uh, it's probably not surprising that you might see more innovation in the ones that aren't. I'm thinking right now of uh, certificate of need. Maybe we're getting some things crossed here, but I think about things that are going on in other states. But because, you know, in my home state, we have certificate of need, we we don't have these innovations. We, we have a, they're closed off to us because we have to ask, you know, the, the basically the state and the healthcare insiders, please, sir, can, or madam, can we have this treatment that is going on in Iowa or Nebraska? Um, they have it. Why can't we? Well, we don't need it. Well, who are they to decide what we need? Um, and it, it keeps us from, from that uh, innovation. It keeps us from, you know, almost, I, I would say it keeps us from reaching self-actualization, which we can go to unless you want to stick with this any further. You have a lot of things written down there. You know, Dwayne, I was just thinking about a, a common a common complaint, right, by some of the special interests. Well, these are highly technical professions, right? I'm an engineer. We need licensure, right, for everyone. And the answer is yes, to Austin's point, sometimes there's really significant and important training and credentials needed. It doesn't necessarily mean you need a government license, though. And just think about all the highly technical professions in America that don't require a license. So you can be a rocket scientist. You can be in cybersecurity, protecting our country, right? There's all these very highly technical professions where people have doctorates to get where they are in their career. And the government doesn't license those. The Institute for Justice, um, and there's been a number of other organizations, uh, Brookings, uh, it's been across the, the spectrum, that have put out studies on lower income occupations where there are more government licenses around lower income professions. So it's really a farce to say that this is about highly technical ones. Uh, and it's... Um... Uh, we don't talk about it often uh, in, in the same vein, but you know this this also touches professions such as education and teachers. But um, one example that's um, kind of interesting: Alan Kruger um, ran the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the Obama administration at one point, and he wrote one of the textbooks for economics, and then is a professor at Princeton. And it's been pointed out that he's not qualified uh, in terms of licensure to actually teach that the course of which people use it at the in high schools. Uh, so that's something where, again, the, the expertise that people gain somewhere, there's a certain disincentive um, for people to even use the knowledge they have. We've talked a lot about the the insiders, whatever industry we're talking about, these insiders that are using licensing as a way to keep competition out of the marketplace. One thing we haven't talked about, and I think is important, is how government actually uses this against people as well. One one story that comes to mind when you were talking about engineers and mathematicians is a story I talked about a few years ago um, where there was a, a red light cameras were just coming in at this point. And there was a man who, I believe his wife got a ticket from one of these red light cameras. And so he looked at the actual code of the red light camera and realized that it was it was an old old code and did not take into account 
people who were making right turns on red. So if you turned right on red, you ran a red light, you got a ticket. And so he wrote up this brand new code and submitted it to the state saying, here's a code that will work that will actually take into people turning right on red. And I believe he was fined for for doing math without a license. Is that is that you're shaking your head? You've heard the story. Yes. So there's been actually a few cases around the country to that uh, nature. And there's actually been career engineers who have come up with plans for similar uh, infrastructure and then have been fined because they didn't have a license to do so. Why would the government, what's the logic there? I, I don't, are they just protecting a cash cow? Is that it? They're getting money from this red light camera so they don't want to make it better? Or what, maybe I shouldn't ask you to really delve into government motivations, but this is this is a problem area too. There's clearly revenue, uh, certainly with a, with a red light camera, but the same thing with licensing. Um, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a issue that we deal with here, which is, is trying to, help people understand sort of the difference between being supportive of the credentials and training versus the government sort of being that control point. So I think um, lawmakers and others, I mean, they're effectively lobbied um, by interests in these because, as we said, it we're not denying that there are health and safety issues with really anything we do. Uh, so there's always a case to be made, um, but it's difficult because I think they see you see those concentrated interests come in there um, and, and make this case. And I think there's it becomes a notion of erring on the side of caution at best or serving self-interest at worst. So self-actualization. I, I talked about this earlier. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to talk about here regarding occupational licensing as it relates to self-actualization. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we'd say, I mean, first and foremost, a lot of people never even start the journey down some of these career paths because of licensing. Um, there's actually uh, there's there's some great research out there um, from various allies that will look at the fact that entrepreneurship rates are much lower in states that have high degree of occupational licensing. Recidivism rates are much higher when ex-offenders don't have a path to even pursue a license. Of course, we we would like that path to not you know be required to begin with. Uh, sometimes that barrier is too great uh, for an ex-offender, even if even if we give them permission. But uh, in order for people to, uh, as we'd say, kind of reach their true potential, I think you first have to allow them to, you know, start to reach that potential. Um, so it, not only does that happen, but it's it's kind of a continual process, as we say. You start as an industry to kind of go down a path um, of certainty with licensing that doesn't allow people to sort of innovate and and meet new demands for customers, find new. Uh, potentials to, you know, sort of not only is the true, true potential of the individual uh, undermined, but sort of the true potential of our whole economic system. Austin hit the nail on the head, and there's actually a really cool website. It's district.works, if you look it up. And it's a flow chart of literally a hundred plus steps to start a business in Washington, D.C. You know, Austin was chatting about inspiring entrepreneurs as part of self-actualization, right? Shouldn't you be able to choose the profession you go into? Shouldn't you be able to choose if you want to start a business? But there are a lot of hurdles, particularly in burdensome licensed municipalities and states. And if we think about it, how many people are not just prevented, but maybe they decide, I don't really want to go down that path. Because I know there are literally a hundred steps in the city of Washington, right? And 
if you're not particularly plugged in, if you're just an average person, you're not going to know those 100 steps, right? And can you afford all of them? Can you afford getting a lawyer and an HR professional, right? When, when you're a one man or one woman shop, you know, I was also thinking about Austin chatted about recidivism rates. If we're talking about folks returning to, um, you know, regular life after serving time in prison, right? For the public safety, we want people to have a job and be able to support themselves and their families. That's good for America, right? It's good for public safety. And from the self-actualization side, right, reaching someone's full potential, it's really important to have meaningful work. And unfortunately, there's a provision, it's called a moral turpitude provision in many statutes around the entire country that prevent uh, people from getting a license if they have any kind of record. Uh, I was chatting with a few women uh, in the past year who they went to cosmetology school, right? So they get into cosmetology school, they go through the whole thing, they pay the tuition, they get to the end to sit for the exam. The day of the exam, they're told they're not allowed to sit by the government. Because moral turpitude? Because moral turpitude. What does that even mean? It basically means they did not meet a good moral character standard for the state. And the, the government judges that. Correct. And specifically, uh, the one woman I'm thinking of, she had a marijuana conviction 10 years ago. <gasps> and she is not allowed to go into cosmetology. I don't, I don't understand the correlation there. Because there is none. <laughs> and look, the good thing is that the, the paradigm on criminal justice reform has really shifted in America. We're making great strides. It's really a moment for criminal justice. And I think licensing has to, has to um, you know, gear up as well. It's an issue across the aisle I think people can agree on. Um, but yeah, if, if the crime does not relate to the profession, people should be allowed to go to work and provide for themselves. That's that's part of people reaching their full potential. It's part of people reaching the American dream. You know, there's immigrants who come here, right? Part of reaching the American dream, maybe they want a business or they want to get into a profession that they didn't have the opportunity where they came from, right? There, there are many of those kind of barriers. I mean, do you have a, have you finished your high school education as if that would be a reason why you could or couldn't do a profession? What's your immigration status? Um, if you're not already in a path to being a citizen, can you not as a legal immigrant or, or other statuses, you know, do something? You're probably often doing the work anyhow under some licensed individual, um, but there's a lot of arbitrary barriers. Um, English have, testing? Yeah, that have nothing to do with whether you could do it. So even, even if we were conceding that there ought to be a license, which of course we hope uh, we're making clear is not the case. But even if that were the case, there are many arbitrary barriers that will prevent somebody from even beginning the pursuit of it. What is there about this issue uh, that I don't know I don't know? I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about the vision and the reinforcing principles, but I, I also sit here and wonder what should I have asked that I didn't? Is there anything that we need to cover before we uh, wrap this up? Yeah, please go ahead. I would love to end this with... Occupational licensing reform is exciting because it, it really captures people across the political spectrum. This is not a right or left issue. 
right? We were just talking about um, folks getting out of prison, right? And having a marijuana conviction should not ban them from entering a profession. It's actually a popular issue of the left. Um, all the way down to uh, some of the business regula- regulation that's more popular on the right. This issue spans the entire political spectrum. You know, President Obama put out a report, you know, that Austin had mentioned. The Institute for Justice, which is libertarian-leaning. Brookings on the left. This is exciting, and I am so hopeful for the upcoming future on occupational licensing reform and reducing barriers because this is something that has common ground and Americans can get behind. Sure. Uh, And and I alluded to this a little bit, but I'll just sort of reiterate that, um, you know, we've, when there's been polling on this issue and and other ways to sort of understand how does the public look at this, um, I mean, I think something that continually is the case and that, that we would like to kind of, you know, reiterate ourselves is, is, Training and credentials, experience, these things are very valuable. They're sometimes very necessary for somebody to be successful at occupations. Um, But I think, you know, other than maybe academics and policy people and elected officials, when you say occupational licensing, they may understand that we're talking about sort of a government system. But I think um, if we we really try to be a little more accurate with it, it's government occupational licensing. It's government licensing um, because there's they're often just creating a more rigid path or adding an extra layer of fees, um, certain mandatory things that aren't necessary to, to be successful in these occupations. Um, so we really w- want to try to educate people better that there's a certain role that government is playing that they don't need to. There's, they're better at some other things. They still hold people accountable for health and safety uh, issues. You know, you can't you know, pr- uh, commit bodily harm to someone else or, or endanger society uh, and, in an unlicensed profession either. Um, and then just something else I was going to note is that there are literally thousands of different occupations if you want to scour every state and local government. Um, but really only maybe a couple dozen are commonly licensed across all the states. And that's not to say that just because 50 states license something that, that this is a, you know, a signed and settled matter and, and, that's, and, and we're not worried about anti-competitiveness or that government shouldn't have a, a scaled back role in those either. But by and large, there are so many occupations that are, are licensed in one place or numerous places, but not all places. And that there's obviously clear evidence in those areas that um, things are, are working just fine and, and, and very similar, except the pricing is better and there's more competition and more consumer choice in the places that aren't as onerous. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.